Jonah chapter number three. We are halfway through the book of Jonah at this point. If you are new here or maybe you're not familiar with the story of Jonah, thus far God has come to this man named Jonah, a prophet, and said, hey, I want you to go to Nineveh, which is the capital city of his arch enemy, Assyria. And he said, I want you to go to Nineveh, give them my words. And Jonah says, no. And he takes off and he runs to uh, Tarshish, which is the corner of the known world, opposite direction. He runs. God pursues Jonah, begins to get after him, uh, sends a storm. Jonah finally gets to a point, there's a lot of intricacies in there, but Jonah finally gets to a point where he says, you know what? I will die before I do this. And he goes into the water, which is certain death for him. It's a watery grave, inevitably. And there in the water, he sinks and gets almost to the point of death. And then the part of the story that most of us know, Jonah, is he's swallowed by a great fish or by a whale. And he spends three days entombed in this well, the Bible says. And if you struggle to believe that, go listen to the sermon when we got to that point in the story. Uh, we, we talked all about that. But he is in the well, and then he repents. He waves the right, white flag. He surrenders. And, and then he is deposited upon dry land. That's where we left off. Chapter 2, verse 10, that this whale vomits Jonah out, is what the Bible says. Kind of gruesome, but kind of vomits him out onto dry land. And then we pick up in chapter 3, verse number 1. And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. So Jonah arose. And he went into Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days' journey. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey, and he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them, even to the least of them. Well, Jonah chapter 3 is an unbelievable passage of Scripture. I dare say that if you were a Ninevite woman who gathered at the well near the western gate the morning that the Jewish stranger walked through, you probably had no idea what was on his heart or on his mind. Little did the Ninevites and those women maybe know that that night they would lay their head on peer-stained and prayer-saturated pillows, that the next morning they would gather together again, but this time it would be in sackcloth. This time it would be not to draw water for themselves because they were fasting, but maybe just to wash some clothes or something. Jonah is a man who goes into Nineveh in chapter 3 and records, arguably, the greatest missionary success story in history. That Jonah does a monumental work for God by walking into the city, proclaiming eight words, translated in English eight words, it's actually five words in Hebrew, and a whole city turns and repents and turns to the Lord in a single day. And chapter 3 records for us really what the heart of God is in, in all of Jonah. That all of these two chapters and the story that we focus on with our children sometimes about this fish and whale and these sorts of things, really it's all meant to drive towards chapter 3 to get to the heart of God where God's saying these people need me and Jonah I want you to go and I want them to hear about me. So I want us to begin to understand this chapter a little bit over the next couple weeks, and I, I want us to just pick it up in verse number one, and we find this. After Jonah is deposited on dry land, verse one tells us, the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, and thank God for those words, the second time. Here is God not 
not content to let his child walk in disobedience. He pursues him. He chastises him. He does everything that he can to win him back, to bring him back, and to get Jonah to a point of obedience where finally Jonah has surrendered and waved the white flag. And all of this is God's mercy. All of this is God's grace. This is all God trying to get Jonah back to himself so that he can say, Jonah, let's try this again. Jonah, let my word come to you a second time. How many of you can relate with Jonah here? I know I sure can. Where the word of God comes to you over and over and over. But you're stubborn and you sink your heels in and you're, you're ready to just keep on walking your disobedience. But over and over again. And every time it comes to you, it's mercy. Every time it comes to you, it's grace that you do not deserve, but it comes to Jonas a second time. And we have a God of second chances. I dare say third and fourth and fifth and a million chances. I'm thankful for the people in history that we see recorded through Scripture that are given second chances, that Moses is given a second chance after he kills a man, that David is given a second chance after he commits adultery, Peter is given a second chance after he, after he forsakes the Lord and basically renounces him in front of people, that God gives those second chances and Glory to God. He's a God that gives second chances over and over again. And it's not, it's not uh, one chance and then it's all said and done. It's not three strikes and you're out. But over and over again, God gives chances to us. And we praise him and we thank him and we can relate with that in our own lives and in our own hearts. But truth be told, it should be something that we reciprocate. It should be something that as Christians, because we've received those second chances, that we give back. We should not just be consumers of second chances and third chances and fourth chances, but we should be vendors of third and fourth and fifth and sixth chances to other people as well. Recently, as a, as a church staff, we read a chapter of a book, and we as a staff, are, we're constantly working through some book, and we talk about it every Monday in, in staff meeting and just kind of discuss it a little bit. But just a couple weeks ago, we came across a chapter in a book that it's called Winning with People and uh, trying to deal with people. And the chapter was the high road principle. And the high road principle was basically there's a low road and that you treat others worse than they treat you. There's a middle road and that you treat others as good as they treat you. And Jesus even says the middle road is people, anyone can do that. He says you love them with love li- which love you. What reward have you? Do you, say, you want a cookie for that? No, that's, that's easy. But the high road principle is I treat others better than they treat me. That I don't feel like they deserve a second chance. I don't feel like they deserve a third chance. I don't feel like they deserve a fourth chance. But I'm going to take the high road and I'm going to extend grace to them. I'm going to give them some mercy. I'm going to give them a second chance. And arguably there are many in this room that you have people in your life that you need to take the high road with, that you need to give a second chance to. And that's not because a book said so. That's because God gave you a second chance. It's because God gave you mercy. God gave you grace. So you should extend that out to someone else. It's interesting to me in this, in this chapter that you see once again that the word of the Lord comes to Jonah. This is actually it's a unique call on Jonah's life. This is not the word of the Lord coming to all of Israel. It's not coming to all of the prophets, but it's coming specifically to Jonah. And God's saying, Jonah, I am going to task you with a specific mission, and I'm going to call you to something that I'm not calling other people to, but I want you to do this. And you see that often in Scripture over and over and over again. But it does help me to maybe back up and think to myself, does God still do that today? Does God still come to people individually and does he still call them to a specific mission individually? And I can say biblically and from personal experience, the answer to that is a resounding yes. 
that he does call people into ministry or to preach or to a mission field. Last Sunday night, we had uh, Stetson Plank with us. Stetson was a normal Christian serving the Lord, I think a chemical engineer. And he felt as though God was impressing on his, on his heart to go to foreign soil to Italy and to give the gospel to people that needed the gospel. I can, even in my own life, relate to uh, several years after I was saved that God called me to preach. And I don't even know how to verbalize that and how to explain that actually. All I know is that it was happening inside of me and I was resisting it, but God was telling me, I want you to do this with your life. That's all that I know. And I've had people ask me, how do I know if God is calling me? Well, the simplest answer I could give you is you just know. You know that God's pressing in your heart and, he, and he's beating that drum over and over and over again. I would dare say, and I'm curious to know, I won't dwell long on this this morning, but I'm curious to know if there are people in the room that have felt that call. Maybe previously, it's been 10 years, 20 years, and you've ignored it and you got busy with life, but in the back of your mind, every, every so often it comes up that I remember when that happened and I didn't say yes. Maybe it's right now. And you haven't told your spouse this. You haven't told your kids this. You're too scared to even think about what this could possibly mean. But you feel as though God's calling you to ministry. If that's you, on the back of your connection card this morning, there actually is a box where you can check that previously right now I feel that. I personally, as your pastor, would love to know that. I'd love to maybe begin a conversation and begin to pray and begin to help you wade through what that means or how you could go about that. But God calls Jonah specifically uniquely and says, Jonah, here's what I have for you, a special mission, a special task for you. I want you to do this. And here's what he says, verse number two, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it, I love this, the preaching that I bid thee. What's God saying? saying, Jonah, same song, second verse. Hey, remember what I told you previously? Yeah, just go do that. He doesn't have to explain it any further. He doesn't have to elaborate. Hey, remember what I told you? That's still what I want you to do. That's exactly it. When God's word came to Jonah the first time, it was abundantly clear. Jonah did not lack clarity. Jonah did not lack understanding. There wasn't some intellectual gap that he had to bridge to really know what God was asking him here. It was abundantly clear. But Jonah chose in his rebellion and his pride and his stubbornness and his selfishness to say, no, I don't want that. Truth be told, we're Jonas. God's word comes to us via a sermon, via our own Bible reading, via some, some message on the radio, and it's abundantly clear what we should do. There are very few of us that have a, an intellectual problem when it comes to obedience and obeying the Lord. We have a volitional problem. We have, we have a selfishness. We have pride. We, we, have, we sink our heels in and we, we become stubborn. That's our problem. And God says, look, I'm going to come to you again, and I'm not going to tell you anything new, buddy. You've gone through the ringer. I've chastised you. Here we are again, and I'm going to tell you, same song, second verse, what I told you last time, I'm telling you again, go to them, give them the preaching that I bid unto thee. We pick up in verse number three, and I, I want to give you now several lessons that I think through verse three and four and five. I think are extremely valid for us as, be, as we begin to understand this passage of Scripture and even Jonah as a whole through these next few verses. So I have three of them for you this morning, and I want you to see the first one. The first one is this. Past service never substitutes for present obedience. Here's Jonah in verse number three. 
The word of the Lord comes again, second time. Says, go do what I told you to do in the first place. So Jonah arose. He did that last time, but he went to Tarshish. And Jonah arose, went unto Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days' journey. See, Jonah was a prophet who had prophesied previously for the Lord. He had fruitfulness of service. His prophecy was accurate previously. Jonah was a man who you could say had some spiritual notches in his belt, so to speak. He had served the Lord. He knew the Lord. He knew the commandments. He was a guy who had past service. But present obedience was far more important to the Lord. When God came to Jonah and said, Jonah, here's what I want you to do. And Jonah said, no, past service didn't matter at that point. Jonah had not accrued capital with God so that he could have a hall pass on this assignment and he could just do what he wanted to for a day or a week or a month or a year and I can get away with this because I've been profitable for the Lord previously. Obedience doesn't ride piggyback. Obedience is something that is in the present. It's in this moment. It's here and now. And it's taken Jonah quite some time to get to this place. Jonah has has paid some money He paid a fare to go to Tarshish. It's a long way away. I I imagine it was a large sum of money. Jonah is a man who has spun his wheels and wasted some time going in the opposite direction. He's a man who costs other people money. The mariners chuck their stuff overboard when the storm comes because of him. He almost costs these men their lives. And on top of all that, he takes a three-day ride inside of a whale's belly, all because he refused to obey. All because he did not have present obedience. And when it comes to your life, my life, Jonah's life, present obedience is far more important than your past service. Many of you in this room have decades of faithful, consistent service to God. That you could say, I was, I was saved and I, I knew the Lord at 10 years of age or 20 years of age or 30 years of age and now it's been, it's been years, it's been decades that I've served him and honestly, I thank you for that. I'm glad for that. I'm thankful that you've made investments and that you've shared the gospel and that you have been here, many of you have been at this church for decades. I'm thankful for that but that does not substitute for present obedience to God. That that does not count for today. It doesn't count for tomorrow. It doesn't count for the next week or the next month. You never reach a point in time in your Christian life where you say, you know what, I'm done. I don't have to walk any further. I don't have to do any more. I've already done enough. I'll just lay down. I'm just going to sit here Indian style and I'll wait for Jesus to come back. You never get to that point. God is always concerned with present obedience and what you're doing today. What does Lamentations 3 tell us? His mercies are new every morning. So that means if you are, are the type that you guilt trip yourself and you don't feel like a good Christian and you don't feel like you can live for God, that his mercies are new every morning. You've got a clean slate. Walk for him today. There is equal opportunity for every single congregate in this room to walk in obedience today. Equal opportunity for all of us today and tomorrow and the next day. So his mercies are new every morning. If you guilt trip yourself, then don't. His mercies are there. Walk in obedience today. His mercies are new every morning. If you feel like in your pride that I have accrued capital with God and that I've earned some credit and now I'm I'm his little teacher's pet and I can do what I want and it doesn't matter anymore, his mercies are new every morning and your slate's clean as well. That you need that today and you need to understand that you need to walk in biblical obedience today. All of us do. 
Past service, past fruitfulness, past prayers, all, it never substitutes for present obedience in the here and in the now, today. Secondly, I would say this, and this really becomes the crux of Jonah in all of chapter number four that we'll see over the coming weeks. But begrudging obedience never substitutes for godly motives. The Bible says in verse number four, Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey and he cried and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Eight words in English, five in Hebrew. Now it's, it's extremely interesting to note the author's emphasis in verse number three and verse number four that Nineveh is a great city of three days journey and Jonah enters into the city a day's journey. Now, frankly, we don't know exactly why that is. I'll be honest, we don't know exactly why. You can read commentaries and you can spend days reading different scenarios or perspectives on why maybe that is and how is Nineveh a city of three days journey when the walls were this big and you can, you can dive into that on your own time if you want to. But one perspective that I read that I found intriguing is that the author is trying to emphasize here that Jonah does the bare minimum. Jonah, the, the city's three days, Jonah goes in a day. He goes in shallowly. God said, give them these words, and Jonah gives them five words. In Jonah's mind, and you see this to be true in chapter four, Jonah is obedient. Jonah can now officially check the box and say, okay, off the to-do list, God, I went, I stepped foot in the city. I said that 40 days you're gonna be overthrown. I said it, I'm done. I'm out, I'm walking away, I'm gonna go set up shop outside of the city, and I'm gonna wait and hope that you rain down fire and brimstone on these people and that you destroy them. This is Jonah's heart, and you will see this clearly over the coming weeks, that his heart is not, what Jonah is not walking into Nineveh holding Josh Messenger's hand and saying, people need the Lord. He's not doing that. <laughs> Jonah is going in angry, begrudgingly, fine, God, twist my arm, I'll, I'll go, fine. I have no other choice, you've boxed me in, I'll give them the message. But his hope, his hope is that they don't repent. His desire is that they die. His desire is that they don't turn to the Lord, that they don't get mercy, that they don't get grace. And you can see that in the story that he is begrudgingly doing the bare minimum. I'll walk in shallowly, I'll give them five words, and then I'm gone. I'm done with this. And be obedience, even if it is begrudgingly, is better than disobedience? Certainly. But begrudging obedience is never the goal. It's never the heart of God that the church twists your arm into coming or into evangelizing or into giving. It's never God's goal that you are forced some way, somehow by your spouse or by social pressures or what are they going to think of me that, that you begrudgingly do the Christian life and the Christian walk. The Bible says that over and over again. This is why Paul can write in 1 Corinthians 13 that though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and I don't have charity or love, I'm become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, that sounds cool, but I don't, but I don't have charity or love, I'm nothing. No, I give all my goods to feed the poor. No, I give my body to be burned and have not charity. It profits me nothing. What's Paul saying? Paul's saying, I can do all of this, and I can walk in this, and I can, I can go the second mile. I can give everything. I can give my life. I can do it all. But if I don't have the right attitude, 
If I don't have the right heart, if I don't have love driving me, then what good is this really? This is why when Jesus is asked, what's the first and greatest commandment? What does Jesus answer? The first and the greatest commandment is what? To love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. And the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Upon this hang all the law and the prophets. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying all of the law, all those thou shalt, thou shalt not, all the do's, all the don'ts, all that rests upon, all that hangs on the hook of you should love God and love other people. Jesus is saying this is not about just begrudgingly do this or don't do this. This is about an attitude. This is about a motive. This is about a heart that you should have. This is not just let me twist your arm and you say I, I cap'n and I, I fall in line. This is you should have love. You should have mercy. You should have compassion. There should be a tenderness. There should be something inside of you that, that wants people to hear about Jesus, not just I'm doing this because the Bible says so. The Christian life is about being and doing, both, but in that order. You need to be inside out. I am something, I'm impacted by God, I'm his child that amazes me. I look, at the, I look at the second chance he gave me, I look at the forgiveness he gave me, I look at the mercy he gave me, I look at how he loves me. How could I not then reciprocate that? How could that not change me? It's designed to be that God works from the inside out because if he can change the inside and your being is different, then the doing always follows. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh, Jesus said. Because if you have evil, then out of the evil treasure of your heart, you bring forth evil. Out of the good treasure, you bring forth good. What's he saying? The inside always comes out on the outside. So the Christian life is about being. It's about a heart. It's about a motive. Now, it's also about doing. The Bible is explicit over and over again of things that Christians should do and should not do and things that we should have a heart for and, and things that should motivate us over and over again. You read the epistles. The epistles are packed with practical, here's what you should do content. They're packed with explicit, like granular, like let me get real specific on here's how you should act as a wife and here's how you should act as a husband and here's how you should act as a, as a boss and as an employee and, and here's what you shouldn't do. And yeah, put that away, uh, get rid of those, of those works of darkness and walk as children of light over and over again. It tells you many specifics of what to do. But if you follow the pattern of the New Testament, it's interesting. In those epistles where you have that content, nine times out of ten, that content is in the back of the letter. It's in the back of the epistle. And the front of the letter, in the front of the epistle, is filled with theology. It's filled with the gospel. It's filled with, here is who Jesus is, and here's how you should respond to him. It's, and what, what you find, the pattern is, even in Paul's writing or in Peter's writing, in these epistles that you find, the, the pattern is, here's who you should be, here's what your motive should be, here's what your desire should be, here's who Jesus is, get your eyes on him. And because of that, now let that spring forth, now let that flow out into what you should do or what you should not do. Now what this means is this. If you're a new Christian, if you are new to the faith, if you're new to our church, if you feel like it's new to me, that should encourage you. Because more important than a seminary degree or you knowing all the do's and don'ts, more important to God and more important should be to you is your heart. Then my heart's in it. And you can do that on day one. 
As long as your heart is, I want to please the Lord, and I love Him, and I love other people, and I just want to show this love, and I'm just going to walk in obedience, that's all you need. Just follow Him step by step by step. It also means, if you've been around the block a while, and you've been in church sometime, and you've served, and you've taught the Sunday school class, and you know the lessons, and yeah, I could quote 1 Corinthians 13 alongside of you, if that's you, what are your motives? Is your heart in it? Or is it routine? Is it just going to church because we always go to church? Hey, I guess we'll go do that thing. I mean, I really don't feel like it, but people are going to expect us to. Is, is the desire there? Is the motive there? Is it a heartbeat of I love the Lord and I love people. Is it a heartbeat of, I want to give glory to God. I want, I want his glory to be shown through my life. I want it to be shown through my family. I want it to be shown through my church. Hey, I have, I have compassion for that person. They do need the Lord. So I want, to, I want to share with them. I want to give the gospel to them. I want to help them. That should be the motive. That should be the heartbeat. And if that's not there and you've been around sometime and you feel like, I'm just getting rusty in my Christianity and I'm becoming mechanical and I'm becoming robotic, then, then you need to begin to, I would recommend a couple things. Read the Psalms. The Psalms are great at punching you in the heart and getting your heart back on track. I would recommend you just praying and saying, God, I want to want. God, I want my desires to change and I don't even know how to change them. Help me. I would highly recommend that you get your eyes on Jesus as much as possible and you consider what he did for you and you thank him for the cross and you remember your salvation over and over and over again. It impacts your desires in ways that I never can. Come on Sunday nights. We're, we're studying Colossians. That is, that's looking at Jesus. It's a beautiful portrait of Jesus and it's meant to grab and squeeze your heart. But if you've been around a while and you feel like this is Man, this is robotic. That's a problem. Because begrudging obedience is never God's goal or intention. It's better than disobedience. So don't, don't think that if my motives aren't there, I shouldn't do it. Because that's not what I'm saying. It's not, well, I don't really feel like sharing the gospel with them, but God put them on my heart, but I don't feel like it, so I won't. I don't feel like going to church, so I won't. I don't feel like giving, so I won't. I don't feel... None of us would ever do anything if that was us, probably. Ever been, I've been there where you didn't feel like it, but you walked in duty, but eventually that duty became delight. So don't not do it. Begr Jonah is case in point. Begrudging obedience was more pleasing to the Lord than Jonah following his heart and just saying, I don't feel like doing this. So do it, but that's not the goal. That's, that's not the point where you want to stay you want to be where your attitudes and your motives are godly and they're in line with God and his word. I, in my own personal life, can tell you time and time and time again, at times I didn't really feel like praying. But about, whatever, 10 minutes in, 15 minutes in, it got good all of a sudden. And that duty became delight. I can tell you over and over again of times where I went to the church, organized evangelism to go do this, and I didn't really feel like it. But about a half hour in of sharing faith with people and trying to, trying to show the love of Jesus to people and sh trying to share God's word with people, all of a sudden someone started to respond and, man, it started to become delightful. I can't, if I'm honest, these are few and far between, but occasionally there'll be a time where I wake up on Sunday morning 
and I don't even feel like getting here and preaching. If I'm honest. Or I wake up, whatever, it's been a long week, or, or the devil's just trying to beat me up that day, or whatever the case may be, and I have to twist my own arm. Now don't worry, I'll keep, I'll keep twisting my arm if, if I have to. I, I won't just not show up one day. <laughs> but you know what happens as I walk in obedience? Man, the heart begins to change. Man, God begins to work. God begins to do something. Begrudging obedience is never the goal. It never substitutes for godly motives. It's better than disobedience, but it's never the goal. Lastly, I'd say this. Your walk never substitutes for God's word. Verse number five says this. After Jonah does as little as possible, has no intention of wanting to see these people be revived, verse number five tells us, undoubtedly to Jonah's dismay, so the people of Nineveh believed God. Don't miss those two words. They believed God. They proclaimed a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. Jonah walks in, says God's words to these people, very few of them, but says God's words to these people nevertheless. And the people, they don't believe Jonah. The Bible says they believe God. What a lesson to all of you who teach children, youth, uh, singles, uh, adults. When you're teaching and preaching God's word, many times people believe God because of you. It's more than just your words. But he proclaims God's word, and they believe, even though he doesn't want them to, even though the motives are entirely trash. Jonah walks in and gives them God's word, and these people have more response to the word of God than Jonah did, which is a shame. Here, here's Jonah, who grows up in Israel, undoubtedly knows the law, knows what to do, has God's word, prophesies for, for God. God's word comes to Jonah and says, do this, and Jonah runs. But God's word comes to these people who have no word. They don't have God. They don't have the law. They don't have anything. And they, and they respond. One statement from God, five words, and they respond. And God's word begins to, like a dart to their heart, begins to impact them and begins to change them. And they respond in obedience to God. And they, and they take these few words, and it changes them. It alters their course from walking to impending doom to now, God, would you save us? We want to turn back to you. We repent. Never underestimate the power of God's word. This is Jonah giving God's word because he was told to begrudgingly, hoping that it doesn't work. And it changes a whole city. You get that? Like, that's incredible. That's almost unbelievable. That here is Jonah just going to give them God's word, a little bit of it, just as, as little as he possibly can, hoping it doesn't do anything. But it's so powerful and it's so impactful that God's word, with God's power behind it, changes an entire city upside down and they begin to repent and turn to the Lord. God's word is always more powerful and is more important then your walk. Jonah is a man who walks into the city, not happy-go-lucky, great example of how you should be. He's still a mess in many ways. But he gives them God's word, and God's word changes them. Now, is your walk important? Sure it is. The Bible's clear on that. We're supposed to walk as children of light, not children of darkness. We're supposed to glorify God. Why? So that they may see our good works. We are supposed to, Titus 3 tells us, 
We're supposed to follow after good works. James 1 tells us that good works are important. So your walk, you, you living the Christian life in front of people, them seeing that you love the Lord, that you're faithful, that you're consistent, that is important. But it is not as important as the Word of God. And sometimes we can fall into a danger when we try to evangelize people and we're trying to get them to repent and turn to God that we begin to rely heavily on ourselves and on our tactics and on our walk and on our our good works rather than the Word of God. You should have both, but the Word of God is always more important. I'm for you loving your neighbor. Absolutely. We just did a, a Love Your Neighbor Week and we encouraged you to do lots of random acts of kindness. I'm for you investing in the community. I'm for you baking goods for your neighbors. I'm for you mowing their lawn. I'm for you being a good coworker and trying to show the love of Jesus just and how helpful you are and how gracious you are to people. I'm for it. But don't think for a moment that I can just do this and I can just walk the walk and never give them the word of God and that's going to accomplish what God's word would have accomplished. Jonah is case in point that you give people God's word. There's no substitute for that. That works. That changes people. That impacts people. And I know that sometimes this is difficult, that we can chicken out. That we'll get to that point that I've been trying to, I've been trying to show the love of Christ to these people, to my neighbors or coworkers or family, whoever it is, but sometimes we can struggle just to give them the word of God, which is ironic to me. Because if there was ever a day and age where it's easy to give people the word of God, it's today. Think about Paul. If Paul wanted to give someone the word of God, he walked up to him, looked him in the eye, and gave him the word of God, which is probably most difficult. It's the most challenging. You have to work up more gumption for that. Paul didn't have the ability to go to the dollar store and buy a Bible for a dollar and hand it to somebody with a few highlighted verses inside of it. Paul didn't have the ability to share an app so that they could read the Bible for free. Paul did not have the ability to take the gospel page on Harvest Baptist website, which we've redesigned, by the way, so that you can share it with people and would be helpful to them. He did not have the ability to shoot them an email, say, hey, check out this website, and they can watch a video and read some text and have a a link to a free done book all on the website. He didn't have that. We do. But somehow we have all these tools or all these mechanisms at our disposal where we can actually share the Word of God with people. We can tweet verses. We can put the gospel on our Facebook page with, with a measure of, uh, there's not as much courage needed there. And sometimes we still don't do it. We still chicken out. We still find ourselves not sharing the word of God. But there is no substitute for that. If you in your own life have some people on your heart or on your mind that you've been praying for, and you've been trying, maybe you've even invited them to church. I'm for you inviting them to church where they can hear the word of God. But I would encourage you this week, share the word with them. If you're bold enough, and I hope that you are, that you can walk up and say, hey, I'd like to share my faith with you. Can we grab a cup of coffee or go get lunch sometime next week? Do it. If you're not, and you just have to give them a done book, you know, we have them in the bookstore for $2 or something. If you don't have enough money, I'll, I'll give you one. I'll give you two. I'll give you 10 if you need them. Give them book. Say, hey, would you read this for me? I'd like to discuss it with you later. 
if that's, if that's too aggressive or crazy for you, at least share a website or share, share something digitally they can read. You have a lot of tools at your disposal to give people the Word of God. And don't es- underestimate what the Word of God can do. Think about in your own life. What converted you? Think about your story. What helped you to see your mess? What helped you to realize that you need to change, that you need to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? There's probably a human instrument attached to that, but I I would be willing to bet this. It's attached to, man, God was just doing something in my life. His word was just working on me. There'd almost be a measure of, I can't necessarily even explain this fully. All I know is that he was working on my heart and somehow, some way, someone had shared the word of God with me and it began to do something inside of me. Do that for somebody else. Walk the walk, yes. Live your life for Jesus Christ that they may see your good works, yes. But don't substitute that for the word of God. Share it with them. I would say as you look at Jonah chapter 3, and we're going to begin to understand a little more next week of the true revival that takes place and what exactly happens here in Nineveh. But I would tell you, your past service, it does not substitute for present obedience. God's more concerned about where you are today. You have a clean slate. Walk in obedience today. I would tell you that your begrudging obedience does not substitute for godly motives. If you're obeying out of duty, okay. But that needs to change. God needs to get a hold of your heart, your, your love for him and for other people. You have to look at the cross. You have to ask him to change your motives. I would say that your walk never substitutes for the word of God. Live life for Jesus Christ. Let them glorify the Father through what they see in you, absolutely. But learn from Jonah a man who gave them God's word in five short Hebrew words. He declares unto them the word of God and it changes the people. It moves them to repentance. It changes their heart and it brings about what we desire to change. What Josh said, people need the Lord. Maybe you're in this room and you need the Lord. We see that, we desire that, we crave that, we want people to change don't sell yourself short. Don't sell God short. Don't sell, don't sell them short. When you put so much stock in your own walk, honestly, you are, you're promoting yourself to a place that you should not be, and you're shortchanging and undermining and underestimating the Word of God. Give them the Word of God. Share the gospel with them. In print form, in digital form, verbally. Frankly, I don't care, but give it to them. 